0: Today's reading is from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. <clears throat> Well, uh, it's, you probably weren't expecting to see me back up here, so I'll explain what I'm doing up here. Uh, Tom Schrader, many of you guys know Tom. Uh, he was the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church. He uh, was one of the founding pastors of Redemption Church. He actually taught a class um, this last Thursday here, and is apparently an incredible class. Uh, he was slotted to preach today, uh, but because of health issues, he is not able to preach today. Uh, Frank is out of town, which means, I think, to put in, in football terms, I am what you call the third string. Um, so uh, that's what I'm doing up here. Uh, it's uh, still great to be here. I want to pray for Tom uh, real quick. Uh, he's just been uh, going through some pretty uh, serious health issues. So let me pray for him, and then we'll, we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, um, we are so thankful for the work that you have done through Tom, or for the incredible example of faithfulness. Lord, and, and uh, passion for your word and passion for uh, people coming to know you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done through him. Lord, and we pray that you would uh, just heal what he's going through. Uh, Lord, be with Sandy as she is walking through this with him uh, and the rest of their family, for, for Tyler and for Haley and for all those who are connected with Tom. Um, Lord, we are so thankful, uh, Lord, for your work through him. We pray for him right now uh, that you would heal him. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I've been gone the last few weeks, and there's been a very specific reason why I want to show you a picture. So this is my daughter, Mabel. She was born on the 8th of January. She is awesome. Um, that's what I've been doing. I've been cuddling her. And actually, I would say this. I'm cuddling her at night and very early in the morning, and then I'm a single dad of three crazy kids the rest of the day. Um, so, but it's been great, and I'll get more into that in just a little bit, but I, I'm so thankful for the way uh, the worship team has stepped up, All, a lot of the other people while I was gone, um, and led very, very well. Um, I'm very, very thankful for that. We can leave the picture up if you want. That's that's fine. She's very cute. Um, she looks exactly like every single other kid we've had. So right now, she's not even a daughter. She's just a baby, and then she'll become a daughter, I'm, su- I'm assuming sometime later. Um, but uh, we're, we started last week, we started the book of Ephesians, and I can't tell you how excited I am to be going through this book. This is an incredible book. It's my favorite book in the New Testament. There's so much depth in this book. There's so much richness in what is portrayed in the book of Ephesians, uh, and, and I'm really glad we're spending as much time as we are. It might seem like we're being tedious, but I assure you there's just that much there, in this book, where it deserves a very detailed rendering of what God is trying to communicate through this incredible book. Um, and uh, because we're going to be focusing in so much on very specific aspects of the book, uh, like today we're really just looking at verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians chapter 1, I want to make sure we have still the bigger picture of what Ephesians is about in mind. Because even though Ephesians is a very dense theological book, it is not really a theological book in the way that we would think of it. It's so much more than that. This is Paul's very honest and very passionate reflection on the fact that God has accomplished a cosmic victory through his son. This is a story of the victory of Christ. And the fact that within that victory, the church has been included in it that we have been redeemed and rescued into this incredible community of God as part of his plan of redemption. So really, the the two big things that we'll see throughout this is the victory of God and the identity of the church as a result of the victory of God. Uh, Timothy Gombus writes this, Ephesians is not a doctrinal treatise in the scholastic sense of the term. It is, rather, a drama, in which Paul portrays the powerful reality-altering, cosmos-transforming acts of God in Christ to redeem God's world and save God's people for the glory of his name. And one of the things I really like about this book is that it brings out another aspect of the gospel that we oftentimes overlook. And we overlook it because we're living in a very individualized world, in a hyper-individualized world. And that although, yes, we are going to talk about the implications that this reality that God's cosmic victory has for us individually, but the way it really talks about it is what it means for the church communally. John Stott writes this of Ephesians. He says, Nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with, private, with a privatized gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, and by unremitting conflict with evil in place of a flabby compromise with it. this is a book that teaches us that our identity as Christians is inextricably connected to our identity in the church. That we cannot define ourselves or understand ourselves as who we are as believers without understanding who we are as the church. That this is the gospel for the church. I love that way of understanding this. And the reason I want to make sure that's clear is because as we focus in on it, we, we need to walk through this book wisely. And I'm Pretty sure it was Tom Schrader who said this. If it's not, somebody else said it, and I liked it. Um, That wisdom is the ability to see both the forest and the trees. And as we go through this, I want to make sure we're doing that. That we're keeping in mind the forest as we focus in on the trees. Because this is a book about the cosmic victory of God and the mystery of our inclusion into Christ. So let's focus in a little bit more. And, And... In getting to five and six, I actually want to start at verse three because it it provides, I think, the context that this happens. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. There's a few things that I want to just mention before we really get into the meat of this. The first is actually for maybe the two or three people who caught a difference between maybe this translation and a translation that they might have. Uh, Frank might have talked about this, but this whole section, 3 through 14, in the Greek is one whole sentence. So if you'll notice... It's weird that the sentence of verse 5 starts two words before. Some translations put it in the sentence before. Some translations put it in the sentence afterwards. It's a preposition. Grammatically, it could modify either way. And so different translators translate it differently. It's not a big deal. But for the two or three people that cared, that's why that's there. Let's move on. The other big thing that we have to talk about is the fact that a a very important but fairly controversial doctrine is introduced and and assumed throughout this text. That is the doctrine of election or doctrine of predestination. It says that he chose them before the foundation of the world. He predestined them to adoption. And we're going to see this word and this idea throughout the whole book. And so for us to not even remotely talk about it would be to miss something. Um, And uh, th- if you're not familiar with it, this is just the doctrine that states that God is sovereign in how He chooses to save people. That He can choose whomever He would like to save. And that He does choose whomever He would like to save. That He did so without any merit on our behalf. He did so without anything uh, to do with us. He chose it in His sovereignty. And, and this is a big part of what's going on in this book. However, and we'll get to this, but, but this is not the main point of this. So that's why I want to talk about it and then move on. And what's interesting about the doctrine of predestination and election, and I get that it is challenging, and I get that it's hard to work through, but the Bible itself doesn't take the time to argue for it. It has no interest in trying to convince you whether or not this is true about God. It's not making an apology for it or anything like that. The Bible assumes that this is true. The Bible assumes that God is in the heavens and he can do what he pleases. This is, this is an assumption that is made in every single context that it, the Bible talks about God's salvation. That it is God who drives this process. That it is him who saves and not anybody else. Um, and We see this throughout, the, even the sections that don't necessarily mention this directly. This is an assumed reality throughout the whole scripture. We see this in, in God's sovereign choice to make Choose Adam to be the steward of creation, not some other animal. Um, He chooses Noah to be saved out of everybody. He chooses Abraham out of all people before he had a chance to even prove that he was faithful. He chooses Jacob over Esau regardless of birthright order. He chooses Moses who was a murderer and a fugitive to go and redeem his people. He chooses to rescue Israel and to punish Egypt. He chooses the seventh son of Jesse to be king who is David. And now he is choosing both Jews and Gentiles in Christ to form one community to display his glory to the heavenly realm. It is his to choose because he is sovereign. As the psalmist writes, and I've mentioned before, God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. God's sovereignty necessarily includes his uncompromised choice. And that's something that we need to see and wrestle through as we do this. But I want to mention this and I want us to, to have this in mind um, because it's, it's important in understanding the rest of it. However, this is not a book about predestination or election. And the point, and my hope, is that we don't walk away thinking, hey, let's talk about this. It's a book that assumes it, and the book that is saying, how do we act in light of this? How do we act in response to God's choice? I love the way Jesus kind of describes it. Um, uh, he, he tells this parable about a worker uh, or a a landowner who needs people to come and work his fields. And so he goes out in the morning and he hires people and He says, I will pay you a day's wages, fair day's wages, to come and work my field. It gets to noon. He recognizes, hey, if I don't hire more people, we're just not going to get the work done. So he goes and hires more people. Then again in the afternoon, he goes and hires more people. In the evening, he hires more people. Up until, they say, the 11th hour. He's going out and hiring more people in it to complete the work. And once the day is completed and they're all coming before the wages, they all come forward and every single person receives the same wage. Those who started at the beginning and those who started at the end. And the people that started at the beginning are complaining. They say, look, we should get more. That's not really that fair. We worked a whole day. They worked for an hour and they made the same wages. What he says is "As the landowner says, this is my money to give. This is my gift to give. and I'm going to do what I want with it, and it's not up to you. And it might sound harsh, but that's the way he's talking about the way God gives his gifts. God gives his gifts because it is his gift to give. And that's how we see this coming through. And this is what's assumed in this passage, is that God, in his sovereignty, in his love, has chosen people to bless. Chosen people to save and chosen people to redeem. Now with all that said though, I want to make sure we're actually going to focus on the main point of this passage, which is not predestination and it's not election. The main point of this passage, the thing that I hope we walk away with is the reality of God's adoption of his people. It is not about election, it is about adoption. And this is the big idea, and we can put it up there. God chose to adopt us because of his pleasure, according to his purpose, and for the sake of his praise. God chose to adopt us because of his pleasure, according to his purpose, and for the sake of his praise. And we look at this, and I want to kind of focus in and break this apart, because the main crux of this is that God chose to adopt us. In the midst of all of this, God chose to to adopt us. This is, one, this is where we start to see a major metaphor that we're going to see throughout Ephesians. A major way in which we as a church understand our identity in light of God's choice, in light of his victory over all things and that is that we are a family. That we have been formed into a family. And not just any family, that we have been formed into an adopted family. An adopted family with a perfect family father. J. I. Packer writes this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance of the future is the primary and fundamental blessing is not in question, but adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. God has adopted us into his family, and he is the perfect father. Now, for some of us, that might really actually be a really hard metaphor to understand That might be something really challenging. We all live with broken parents. Uh, I am a broken father. We all have had broken fathers. Some of us have had really broken and sinful fathers. And this is something that I think is really hard to understand and address. That having given really no good example of what it means to have a good father, now we are to look to God as our perfect father. And what I want to at least challenge you is that, that if there's ever any hope for healing, in the midst of growing up with just a really bad dad, it's to find our perfect father in God. It's to allow him to be that that your father maybe wasn't in your life. And some of us grew up with with really great fathers and, and got a glimpse into this, and that's wonderful because that'll make it, I think, a little easier for us to relate to this. But ultimately, all of us should see this truth, that God is our perfect father. And this is what I mean by that, that he is always patient. If I'm occasionally patient, I feel like I'm doing awesome. God is always patient with us. He disciplines us with perfect wisdom. He shows constant grace. He's kind and authoritative. He protects and provides for us. He's always available, and he never gives up on us. There's not a single thing that we can do to make us not his child. And that is amazing. He has adopted us into his family, and he is our great. Good, loving Father. But not only that, because there's something implied in this that I think is often overlooked, but it's what makes this such good news. And that's the fact that he has not only adopted us into his family, but he has adopted us out of a terrible and broken family. Just as God is the perfect and best Father, Satan is the worst. He is a terrible, terrible Father. He is abusive and neglectful. He is harmful and he kills his children. He is bent on your destruction. This is the most messed up home you could possibly imagine. And that is what every single person is born into. A devastatingly broken home with an evil father. And God, in his love, has chosen to adopt us out of that family and into his I love uh, this quote from, I believe it's Matt Smethurst, Smethurst, Smethurst. Ryan, do you know? Uh, Smethurst. Smethurst, okay. So we'll go with Smethurst. Um, it says this, The gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. It goes from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. You know, one of the things that I, I love about Redemption Church um, is the, the amount of care and time they have put towards caring for foster kids and adopting kids and, and, and the, the amount of ministry and, and, and time they have put into that. Um, and because of that, I've gotten to, to witness and be a part uh, of seeing this play out, seeing this process of adoption happen. And, and uh, when, when an adopted family actually goes to the courtroom to sign the documents to do that, they call it a gotcha day. I've actually gotten to go and and, and be a part of one of these gotcha days. And it's this incredible moment because in that moment, you're seeing this child who was going to have one history, who was going to have all of this stuff that that would have played out in their life. Now, none of that will happen, and a new history is formed. A new story begins with them. They've been brought out of of what would be deemed a, a, a hard and harsh home into a loving home. They've been brought from this thing to that thing, and you see this incredible moment. And in the same way, this has become kind of one of my favorite ways of thinking of what happened with Jesus, because the, the cross is God's cosmic gotcha day. That's what happened. Is that in that moment, he says, now you are no longer his but mine. You are my child. And no longer are you in that home, but now you're in mine. It is a beautiful, beautiful reality. And not only that, but if you'll notice in the the Bible, it says that we have been adopted as sons. And this isn't a slight against women. Uh, This isn't saying that if you're, this is only really for men. What he's pointing out is the nature of the kind of adoption that we all, men and women, get to experience. Because at the time, when you were adopted as a son, that meant not only that you became the child of this person, but you inherited all of the things that comes along with being a son of the father. That you carry with him the name, that you carry with him the identity, you carry with him the inheritance. That the full, uh, the full uh, weight and, 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 and everything that you could possibly get, the, all the blessings that come from being a son are passed down to you. You are not a second-rate child. You are not anything like that. You are the son. Just think about the implications of that for a little bit. And we're going to talk about it. That means that the inheritance of God is now ours. The identity of God is now ours. The access to the Father is now ours. That his character, his personhood has been placed into us because we have been brought into Christ We have been adopted from the family of hell into the family of heaven. And that is incredibly good news. But I think we should ask the question, why? Because yes, this is an incredible truth. But we have to ask, why would God do that? Why would God adopt a people that were against him? Why would he care for us when he had no guarantee that we would care for him? And by all accounts, we didn't. We didn't want to be adopted. We had had like Stockholm Syndrome for the family that we'd been living in for so long. Not even realizing how harmful our home was. Why did he do this? And we see this kind of play out in the rest of the passage. It illuminates this. The first is that he chose to adopt us because of his pleasure. He chose to adopt us because of his pleasure. It says this in love, he predestined us. In love, he predestined us for adoption. This is something he didn't feel obligated to do. This is something he didn't do out of duty or anything like that. He did it out of love. So I, I mentioned this a little bit before, but and this is a normal thing when you bring a new baby home. The kids are emo for a little while. So I've had I've had three like very emo little boys living in our house, um, it's been it's a lot of like frontline parenting over the last few weeks, and uh, particularly our two year old, which we and we knew this would happen, and he's going to be fine, but but you know his world has been rocked. All of a sudden, there's a new little baby in town. And he's not particularly excited about that all the time. Uh, I'll give you just a quick example. Uh, he, uh, he's also in this, apparently this is blessed time of uh, aggressive throwing. Uh, this is something that little boys sometimes go through where for no reason at all, he'll just pick stuff up and throw it. And he loves it. He's got a great arm. I've been trying to encourage him to go outside, but he'll just do stuff. And, and like, it's like if you stop paying attention to him for two seconds, that's all it takes. He looks at you and just throws it. Or the other thing he'll do is he'll take his cars, and if you have, like, your phone or a plate or anything like that on the coffee table, he'll just look at you, slowly move it towards that, and push it off. <laughs> Stone cold. <laughs> That's what we've been dealing with. It's been great. Um, but, you know, like, he's going through a traumatic thing. He'll be fine. We love him, and we, we're loving him through that. And another way this is played out is he be, he's become very, very attached to me. Um, and how this happens, and, and what we'll see happen is, is particularly in the morning when he wakes up, or if he wakes up in the middle of the night, which sometimes happens still. Uh, what I get woken up to is not, there's not even, like, a subtle movement. It's just, Daddy, out! Daddy, Out! shouting, shouting for me to come and pull him out of his crib. Now, what we haven't told him yet is that he's fully capable at this point in time of getting out of his crib on his own. That brings a whole host of other problems, so we're not going to tell him that, and please do not share that reality with him. Um, And I'm not sure why he's so upset about being there. He's got all of his stuffed animals and stuff like that. But regardless, he's just shouting, Daddy, out! And that's been my alarm clock for the last two weeks. It's him shouting that. And on the one hand, like, at the very moment it happens, it's not super sweet sounding. But as I think about this, this moment where my child is just longing for me to come and rescue him. He just wants me to come and get him out of the crib. There is something in my heart as a dad that I just, I love it. And I don't care what time it happens. I don't care any of that stuff. I'll go in and get him out of the crib. I'll go and rescue him. Because I love him. And I know that as he gets older, that's just not going to happen as often. God loves us. God loves the ability to rescue his children. He hears us when we are all crying, daddy, out. Daddy, out out and he comes and he will come and get us because he loves us. He takes great delight in rescuing his people. He takes incredible pleasure in pulling us out of whatever situation, bringing us out of this terrible home and bringing us into his family. If there's one thing we understand about his election and his choice and his adoption, it is that it is driven out of love. He does this because he loves us. And that is amazing. So he adopts us because of his pleasure. Not only that, but he does this according to his purpose. We see this at the end of verse 5. It says, according to the purpose of his will. So he does this according to his purpose. That this is part of a plan. And God is, this is what I love about the book of Ephesians because it reminds us that we have been brought into something way bigger than us. And I'm not just talking about the church. Yes, the church is bigger than us, but the church is part of something way bigger than the church. There is something going on that we don't really understand, but we play a role in it, and it has nothing to do with us. It's because of God, His grace, and His choosing. And we'll see this later, but I want to kind of show you a little bit where this goes. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. What I love about this passage is I don't really fully understand its implications. It doesn't explain what it means. It just explains that it. Ha- it just says that it happens. That God's adoption of us into his family, is bringing us into something bigger. That he is choosing this moment to display the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We have been chosen and brought into this family because of his will. Because this was his purpose from the beginning to do this. To proclaim his goodness and his cosmic plan of victory. So he did this because of his pleasure. He did this according to his purpose. And lastly, we see that he did it for the sake of his praise. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What I love about this is it put, puts our adoption where it should be, and that's that it is an act of worship. The reality of us being adopted into his family worships him. It praises him. It, just, it puts on display something unique about God. And that is his irresistible, unmerited, and glorious grace. And I love how it says that when God is praised, the church is blessed, that we have all been blessed in the beloved. It's like a birthday party. We're not just celebrating the kid. Everybody gets to, to party. Everybody gets to celebrate. That as we praise God, we all get to participate in that glorious praise and that joy that we get. Because what God did in adopting us is something scandalous. It is something that is not replicated in any other religion out there. Every other place, there is some aspect of you that merits salvation. There's something you have to do to earn this. There's something you have to do to maintain it. There's something you have to do to be a part of it. And in this, there's nothing. There's not a single thing you can do to merit God's grace. There's not a single thing you can do to make yourself more adoptable. There's not a single way that you can cause God to act. It is God who saves. It is God who, despite all of those things, chose to save his people. And that's what's put on display. The manifold wisdom of God is that this world should be, should be run by grace and not by merit. And he puts it on display through the power of the church. The fact that we've been adopted and saved into this people. What I love about this reality is that that it demands a response. And And I think as we read through the scripture, that should always be something we do. This isn't something we just hear. This is something that should change the way we understand who we are and how we act in this world. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. I've accepted God's call of grace and been brought into his family. But even for you, I want to challenge you guys to, to think differently about your salvation in light of our identity that we have. That God is your father. He's no longer your judge. He's not a lawyer putting up some document, some contract. You are now a son and daughter of God. You've been brought into his family. That's what's beautiful about family. There's You can't, like, my kids can do a ton of stupid stuff, and they're still my kids. There's nothing they're going to do to ever change that. Nothing they can do to ever break that reality. That's the kind of relationship we've been brought into with God. That He is now our Father. And not just that, but He is our perfect, good, and loving Father. I, I want to, particularly for, for those of us in here who might carry with us a pretty deep father wound, um, I know that it's gotta be so hard to walk through this life with that. This is not, that is not the way life was meant to be. But I, I, wanna, I wanna encourage you to find healing through this reality. Because the truth is, it may never be changed in this life. It may be redeemed, it may not. But ultimately, God is your good father and he will be that eternally. And that is where we find our healing, that is where we find our rest and peace in him that God is our perfect, and loving Father. And if, even for those of us who maybe had a good example, who have had a really great relationship with their father, think of God like that. I don't think of God like that enough. I don't come to Him that way. I don't come to Him with the big things. I don't come to Him with the little things. I don't ask Him all of this stuff. I don't spend time with Him the way I would my own dad. Let that shape the way you think of God and think of who you are. Not only that, I want to challenge you guys to remember that you are a family. That is the second implication for those of us who have been called and and have responded to God's grace. That we are not just congregants. We are not just friends. We are not just people who see each other on Sundays. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters. We are adopted brothers and sisters who didn't deserve to be in this family but were brought in anyways. And that changes the way we interact with one another. Changes the way we challenge one another and love one another. We care for one another. We are a family. We've been brought into a family. Some of us in here may not know what it's like to be a part of this good family. Uh, There may be some people in here who um, are still living under Satan's parenthood that you have been abused, that you have been beaten, you have been, you've been neglected. And for you, I want to I tell you that there is a father who loves you and has adopted you into his family. There's nothing you need to do to change yourself, to make you more deserving of it. Just respond and say yes. Just say, Daddy, out, and he'll come and rescue you. And if you are there and if that is where you are, I, want to, I don't want you to leave without entering into the family of God. Because it is good news that we have been adopted. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so overwhelmed, God, by your reality. That you, in the midst of everything, chose to save us. You chose to redeem us when we were unredeemable. Lord, you chose to love us when we were unlovable. You chose to bring us in and invite us to the table when we were beggars on the street. God, you and your glorious grace have redeemed us, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately to the truth of your good news. Lord, that we do not need to fear condemnation. Lord, that your courtroom is no longer one of judgment. Lord, it doesn't have to be one of judgment, but that it is one of... adoption. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've done. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.